0: The Keira Feeling podcast. My guest this week is Eilish O'Carroll. She's an actress, writer, comedian and cast member of the popular sitcom Mrs Brown's Boys, where she plays the character of Winnie McGugan. Eilish speaks to me about finding love with a woman after two marriages, her career and what it was like growing up in the O'Carroll household. Eilish, can you take me back to your childhood? You uh, grew up a massive family, family multiple siblings, what
1: was the O'Carroll house like? uh so it was a madhouse, absolute madhouse, terribly overcrowded uh when I was born, and my first four years were in a house in stony batter uh Dublin, and it was a two up two down, right, so you had two bedrooms upstairs and two rooms downstairs, which was you walked into the living room and then you had a scullery at the back. And there was eleven of us living in that house at the time, so that was that was but i i've no sad memories i mean I was always very warm Kira <laughs> um and the only meal that we really sat round together for um as a as a whole family was sunday Sunday lunch, and how my mother managed to put a table in that small room and feed us all of us uh it still it still blows my mind, right um but yeah, it was a happy household for me. um I had lots of mammies, as you can well imagine, because my own mum was very busy doing other things, uh so I had four older sisters who kind of picked up the slack. in fact, I would say oh, the second eldest sister really you know I realize now was more of a mother than a sister. And still is to a great degree. And it's, it's, it's in her language rather than, I don't think she's aware of it, but it's in the language she uses with me. And I go, you still think I'm a child. Anyway,
0: yourself and Brendan, you're, you're the youngest in the family. Was it constant messing in, in, in your household? And obviously for people that may not know, well, you're the sister of Brendan O'Carroll of Mrs. Brown's Boys. Of course you play Winnie McGoogan. Was it the crack 90 in the house?
1: The crack was always 90 in the house, uh, because, um, we were all brought up with a great sense of humor. Um, Brenton being the baby, obviously, and a very unexpected baby, uh, was the apple of my mother's eye. And she, and I think it was because she, she had nine children before Brenton, and obviously she must have, I'm not sure whether she ever had time to really enjoy having a baby. Does that make sense? And when he came along, he came along in a time of her life where her career was changing, her career was more or less coming to an end, um, which wasn't her choice either. But so he, I think, consoled her a lot and he brought a lot of um, joy into her life, which was pretty, pretty rotten at the time for her. Um and he was so funny. He was funny as a baby. Uh and he was funny as a as a, a toddler, right? Um uh, and everybody just adored him. And he fit in like the rest of us fit in, right? So but there was a huge amount of competition, Kira. Huge amount of competition. Because we all wanted Mammy's attention. And it wasn't possible to get Mammy's attention. So you you came up with an amazing um Creative ideas, how to get her attention right um, so we were always competing as far as performing was concerned, right, and like Brendan was a great artist f- from a very young age, so he would he would write st- he would draw stories, so he would draw these pictures, and then he would sit on her lap and he 'd be explaining. The whole story to her, I mean he was he was very gifted, there's no doubt about it. I couldn't compete with that i only I could only do ballerinas that's all I could do big flouncy skirts and so on and so forth and I knew even at that age i'm thinking I'm never going to be as good as that never right so um so yeah that that's how we kind of we 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 were a great family for entertaining ourselves, right, and I know when we became teenagers uh he he and I always entered um, talent competitions <laughs> in in mainly in pubs. Right. And I'd get up and sing and he'd get up and tell jokes. I mean, that's basically what it was. Um, And it was a great it was a great time. It was a great when I look back on it now it was a great time.
0: Your father uh, passed away when you were quite young and your mother obviously caring for 11 children. Yeah. What was that like? I know you said you had a happy childhood, but your father's death, like your your mother must have been under significant pressure then in the household.
1: She really was like when my father died, I was coming up for 13 and Brenton was nine. I think he was coming up for nine and uh and Michael would have been 14. And the twins, the twins were then 16, 17. Now, by the, when my father died, all the girls had already left home. Right. And my one of my brothers, Phil, he'd he'd joined the RAF. So there was only one, two, three. There was only, I'm trying to remember now, but there was uh, myself and Finbar, there was only four of us really living at home at the time. Um, But that was still and we were still all at school. Right. Or just just about working. And so it was very, very hard for her because all she had was, uh, you know, her widow's pension. My dad didn't have a pension as men didn't in those days. He worked for a family member. He worked for uh, his brother-in-law for 40 odd years. So he didn't actually have a pension. Um, so she must have found it very, very difficult. Um, and it was a very sad time. Uh, and we were like, I lost my dad and Brendan lost his dad at an age when you would, you're just about Developing a different kind of relationship with your father. Um, so I never got that opportunity. I learned from my older sisters what he was really like because as a young child, I know he was there. Um, and I know he used to tell us ghost stories. Um, and he used to make all our toys, but I don't ever remember having a conversation with my father. And yeah, so. That was
0: that was. Yeah, yeah. But we got on with it, you know. Who has influenced decisions that you've made in your life, Eilidh?
1: Oh, my God, that's a that's a tough one. I'd probably say my mother. She was a very wise woman. um, And she kind of she brought us all up with a social conscience. Right. And I, I, I joke sometimes that we, you know, we had porridge in the morning and it was sprinkled with sugar and socialism, right? Um, she was very pro women, as you can imagine. She was very pro anti injustice of any kind. So we were fed this. So I kind of, I suppose became very intense. My reaction is visceral to injustice when I see it, you know, and I just, I, I, I could possibly become very violent and I don't mean that, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, Like some people can actually see a situation and say, well, that's really quite tragic. I want to get in there and sort it. I want to get in there and stop it. Right. Um, and major decisions in my life. She also helped, although she was, she was, she had passed away by the time I'd say my life, um, became difficult. Um, for want of a better word. And I always remember her saying to me, um, Life, you know, can throw you a curveball. And if you, when you get really, really down, if you really think you're at rock bottom, right? Remember, always remember that life is energy and energy has to move. So if you've hit rock bottom, the only way you can go is up. And that really held me in good stead, especially when I was in the depths of despair. And I thought, it can't get worse. It really cannot get worse. So that means it has to get better. Uh, like another thing she used to say, if you want something badly enough, um, and you keep at it and keep at it. So, but the way she described that was, if you throw enough shit at a wall, something has to stick, <laughs> uh, which is so true. So never give up, right? Never give up trying. Um, you only fail when you stop trying.
0: What had you in the depths of despair, um, and at rock bottom?
1: Oh my God. Um, I think the first time I was in the first time I was in depths of despair, really, I'd, I'd emigrated to Canada. Now, I didn't really want to go to Canada, but all my sisters had emigrated, right? Now, I had two sisters in England at the time, but that was emigration in England in those days. That was like, we're never going to see them again. Um, and I had a sister in America and a sister in Canada. And I thought, for some bizarre reason, in my head, I thought, this is what the girls do. I have to, I have to go. Um, so at 16, 17, I went to Canada and I was terribly, terribly homesick. Um, and I didn't expect that to happen to me. Um, my sisters, as far as I was concerned, didn't understand me, Um, you know, so I was a very, very, as a teenager as well. And I was only a teenager. I was trying to uh, get my head around a different culture. I found they didn't have any sense of humor. They didn't understand what I was saying. um, I'd use words that they've felt were very funny and I didn't think they were funny at all because why didn't you know that word right and um yeah so it was it was a growing experience for me and I didn't stay long I came back the, the month after I arrived I started saving for my fare back and yeah I I should never have gone but again you know I I felt it was my juicy I felt that it'll say something about me if I don't go Um there was almost an expectation that all the boys stayed at home, all the girls flew the through the coop. That was my first <laughs> despair. Do you want to tell me about another? Oh, others, yeah. Uh, my first marriage wasn't a pleasant marriage and it was a very abusive marriage and I didn't, I really didn't know how to deal with it in so much as I really thought, you know, you made your bed, now you're lying in it. You're going to have to put up with this. Um, marriages for life and, and so on and so forth. Um, but it really was a situation that any woman would want to get out of. Um, and it, took me eight years, and I knew, like six months after I got married, i knew inst- I knew that this this was bad um but I didn't know how to get out of it I, I just thought I can make it better. I can be a better person if i do such if I don't say the wrong things and I don't behave in the wrong way or whatever you you, you I took it all on, and it was my fault um, was the
0: physical abuse
1: so oh physical and mental and, and, uh, and psychological. So, um, and I remember once, um, after a particularly bad, uh, experience, I remember feeling so desperate and again, so rock bottom. And I thought I'll never get out of this. And I thought, no, you will get out of this. You will. You have to plan. You have to plan to get out of this. And I did. And whenever I could f- find a few spare quid, I'd put it away. I put it, and it was my emergency money as every Irish mother in those days would advise their daughter, always have a bit of emergency money, runaway money. So I had my little runaway account and it took me eight years to actually go, I'm ready now. And when I knew that I was ready, I, the strength that came with that, the fear that I had felt dissipated long enough for me to say, that's it. This is over. Um, and any woman who lives in an abusive relationship, although, you know, people say, well, that's it. She left and that was the end of it. It is, it isn't the end of it because it's the, it's, it's the beginning of the end, if that makes sense. Um, because you don't just walk out and make a new life to yourself because they won 't let you right they're still they're still trying to control you um and at that time uh, Kira, there was very little support for women in my situation. there was no refuges that I was aware of um you you didn't tell people either that was the other thing there was a huge amount of shame and humiliation around it, so i didn't tell people i couldn't tell people um so yeah, I, but I, I did actually find the strength and I did actually, um, leave. Um, and I had two children at the time and it was the best thing I ever did. Um, and I can't, I can't, I mean, I look back on it now and I go, where did I find the resilience? Because at that time as well, we had a house with a mortgage, but of course he'd stop paying the mortgage, paying the mortgage. So that was a way of controlling women as well, you know, through, through the purse strings. So if you have no money and you have, you have no support, where do you go with two small kids? You don't, you stay, right? So I had to take on the building society and. I remember eventually the whole thing went to court. I'm trying to keep this short. <laughs> the whole thing went to court and the judge, there was, he, he had gone, he disappeared and the judge awarded me the house, right? So I went to the building site and I said, look, yeah, <laughs> the house is mine. And, and they said, sorry, no, we can't release him of his obligation to the mortgage. I said, but yeah, but I have a, I have a court order here saying that no, we don't have to adhere to that court order at all Um so and they said you know you haven't got the wherewithal to pay the mortgage and I said but I've been paying the interest I've been paying the interest and you haven't asked me where that's coming from so I I set up camp right in their office every day I would turn up and the manager come out and say to me Liz, I don't know why you're sitting there I said oh I'm sitting here until you put that house in my name that's why I'm sitting here Right. And I said, and the school holidays are coming up soon. So the kids will be here as well. And I'll be giving them their lunch and so on and so forth. And eventually, eventually, after about six or seven months, he said to me, you want me to put the cart before the horse? And I said, yes, I do. Because I said, you're getting nothing at the moment. We can't find this man. You won't release some of his obligation to the mortgage. You are never going to see that money. So I said, we all, I said, and and what's the long term for me is eventually you'd have to evict me. And I said, I'd like to see you try and do that with children of my age. So eventually, but where I got the strength to do that, I do not know. Right. Because most people would go, oh, well, that's it. That's, I can do nothing about it. And I thought, no, no, I can do something about it. And, and the, you know, when people say, no, you can't have that. And I go, If you give me a really good reason, then I'm 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 happy to listen. But if it's because of some, I don't know, um, ticking a box, no.
0: (laughs) And after the seven months that you set up camp, did you get the house?
1: Yes, I did. I got the house put into my name, my name only. And it was it was fantastic. They they released him of his obligation. Right. And the judge had already awarded me the house. So it meant that when I sold the house, he he would he wasn't entitled to any claim. So, yeah.
0: You you've spoken about this previously, um, but for those listening who may not know, you are married twice yes. and you have two sons that you mentioned, but you started a relationship with a woman, your partner, Marion. Yes. It must be, is it close to 19 years ago now?
1: Yeah. Well, I, 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 would it wasn't marrying I, I my marriage okay, my second marriage, I was married for the second time to a lovely man. And I met a woman in my I was just I had just celebrated my fortieth birthday and I met a woman then and I fell in love with her. Um but, you know, we didn't walk hand in hand into the sunset. It it we spent quite a few years together, but it wasn't, you know, it was the catalyst, Kira. So I I came back to Ireland in, I think it was 95, 96 initially, but officially then, you know, permanently in 98. And I came back to Ireland and I met Marion in 2003. So we, and we've been together 20 years this year. Yeah, yeah.
0: And can you recall the moment that you realised that you were gay? Oh,
1: no. am. <laughs> um, I record the moment when I thought, this is not normal. What I'm feeling to, for my feelings for this woman are definitely not normal. And that's how I thought. And that's how most straight people thought at the time. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't particularly religious, but all my conditioning, all my Catholicism, all my Catholic upbringing came flooding back at me. Like, you cannot, this is, this is, this is a sin. Um, this is not normal. Uh, you need help. Um, maybe you're not well. Uh, maybe you're going through the change, all of these things. So it took me, oh, I, I want to look back on it now. Um, it took me years to come to terms with it. Right. And it took me until I was 50 to actually accept that I am gay. And, but the journey from, that, that day to this day was, was quite painful. Um, I didn't handle it right, Kira, um, in any way, shape or form. I, I didn't tell my sons, although they were like teenagers at the time, I couldn't, couldn't tell them because I felt, um, they would reject me. Um, the only person I really spoke to about it was my husband and he was extremely supportive. Because he was a very non-judgmental kind of guy. he was not like, "Oh my God, shock horror." He's saying, "Well, you know, uh, maybe it's just a phase, maybe it's now I wasn't in a relationship with her. I was just had these feelings which tormented me, and um anyway, it wasn't a phase, and it wasn't a change of life um and we did I think about two years after I met her, we did end up moving in together, and she was married, she was straight. Um, but as I say, it, it didn't, we didn't walk hand in hand into the sunset. There was no happy ending. And I often question why that happened. And I often question if it hadn't happened, would I be still married? Would I be retired somewhere in Cornwall, which is where he lives now? Um, I don't know. You can't answer those questions. I just know that my life totally changed and I, went on a completely different uh, road um, and and wonderful things happened. I mean, it was it was a tough journey. But when I look at my life now and I go, hey, that never would have happened had you not met that woman.
0: How did your sons react when you did eventually tell them?
1: When I eventually told them, they were amazing.
0: <laughs> um,
1: I They knew anyway, but I had never said that. Well, they that's what they told me. But when I went back to tell them, and again it was it was it was ten years um, later, and I was over visiting, and we all went out for a meal, and I said, "Listen, guys, I've something to tell you." And the only reason for that visit was to tell them. I said something to tell you, and they said, "Fine, no problem." But we have dinner first? And I should have I should have smelled a rat then. Should we have dinner? I have something to tell you and you want to have. Yeah. I said, we'll, we'll order dinner first. And so we had dinner and then, you know, they cleared the plates and I get myself all ready. And I said, OK. And my eldest son went, listen, let's order dessert. Should we have dessert? Right. I, so I'm going, OK, we'll have dessert. Dessert came, then coffees. Right. Sure, didn't no rush. Let's have a cup of coffee, and it was over the coffee, and he said, "Sorry, Mum, you you something to tell us?" So I told them, and there was complete silence. Right, and I thought, whatever you do, Irish, don't cry. Don't you know you're you're ready to tell them? And my eldest son said, "I have to say, I'm I'm very angry," and I thought he was angry because I'm saying I'm gay, right? And I said, that's that's how you feel. He said, no, I'm not angry because you're a lesbian. I'm angry because we knew you were going through a really tough time. We knew something was up. We knew that when you were with um, Colleen, we knew. we knew, we knew, we knew, we knew, but we couldn't we couldn't bring up the subject because you had to tell us and you you denied us the opportunity to be there for you, to support you, to help you. Now, I had said, I had said to myself, whatever you do, don't cry, because I didn't want the tears to disable their reaction there. You know what I mean? And I but I wanted to cry then, And he said, you know, mom, we love you. And we could talk about the kind of mother you were forever, but being a lesbian has nothing to do with that. So I, I so I regret not telling them. And I suppose I would say to any woman or man going through a similar situation, don't be afraid. Talk to somebody, but don't be afraid, and particularly those around you who love you. And allow them... A, an adverse reaction. Allow them speak their mind because, you know, um otherwise you're denying yourself the love and support that you desperately need. But I was felt so guilty, Kira, that I thought I can't do that to them. I can't I can't project my pain onto them.
0: What age were you and what age were they when you told them?
1: Stuart, oh God, when I told them a uh, fifty I say I had Stuart when I was 20. So Stuart was coming up for 30 when I told him. And Lee was coming up for 26. However, when I left, Stuart was 20, right? And Lee was, I think, Lee was 17.
0: When you say you left, um, where what are you talking about?
1: Well, when, when I when I first realized, right? Sorry, not when I left, when I first realized what was happening to me. That was the age. And I couldn't tell them. Sure, it was at university um, and Lee was working. And it was like, no, I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't mess up their lives. So I I <laughs> stupidly thought I was hiding it. I didn't tell anybody.
0: When you left that meal after telling your sons, how yes. did you feel?
1: Oh, uh, guilty because I hadn't told them. Guilty because they were... they. That I had denied them the opportunity. But as I said at the time, I said, you know, guys, I didn't know how to. I, this was, I couldn't come out to myself. I couldn't accept it in myself. So I thought it would be impossible for you to accept it. Um, but I, the relief I felt was huge, absolutely huge. That it was that, that, that I now, cause I, by, at that stage, I had come out to myself. I had accepted who i was and i thought it, it doesn't matter about their reaction if they reject me i'll have to live with the pain of that but i can't protect them uh from i can't protect them from the truth
0: how happy are you now
1: well i I've, I've, how happy is anybody um i'm very i'm very happy now i am very happy now um i'm very fortunate uh, that I had a change of fortune as well as a change of life. Um, so yes, I can't, I really can't complain. I have a wonderful family, uh, who absolutely adore my partner. Life has changed dramatically in Ireland, uh, for LGBT, uh, people. So yeah, it's, it's very, very different. And I remember, uh, to give you an example of how, happy i can feel at times i was down in the rubbish dump the other week i go down every week because i don't have the because because i'm away so much it's easier for me to take my stuff down to the rubbish tip in north strand and i went down the other week and i know the guys really well and, and one of the guys came up and oh how are you I haven't seen you for ages you were away your missus was down Right. Your missus came down now a few weeks ago. She was doing the rubbish and she's been walking the dog. Now, these are working class Dubliners. okay? that would never been said 10 years ago. They wouldn't even have acknowledged it. It would have been your friend was down. You know what I mean? So I kind of and then just in that little statement and how he said it and I thought, God, how times have, thank God times have changed and that I'm not introducing her as a friend, that I'm not saying, oh, you know, oh, sorry, I can't go out because I'm going out with my friend. It's terrible that what we do to ourselves.
0: Mrs. Brown's voice has been a major success internationally. Yes. How did you deal with the initial fame and does it bring challenges working with family members?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. How did I deal? I didn't deal with the initial fame because I didn't think I was famous. I didn't. Right. I loved it. It was. It was. It was so exciting. And I think what helped helped. What made a difference to my reaction to it was because we had been doing Mrs. Brown's Boys for nearly, God, nearly fifteen years before it ever hit the telly. Okay. So we'd been. Trudging about in the UK and Ireland, putting on various Mrs. Brown's Boys plays. So when it actually hit the TV, number one, we didn't think it would last, right? Um, and we just, we, the, the, the most exciting moment, I suppose, was going to the BBC to do the pilot, right? Because we thought, enjoy every minute because we won't be back, right? They'll never commission this. right? And I even remember Brendan saying to us, he said, now enjoy every minute of this, he said, because there is no way in hell is your is your Englishman going to watch the TV, BBC and go, oh, how lovely is that, right? And he said, now while we're here, he said, if it's not nailed down, take it home for a souvenir, right? <laughs> and he said, because we're not going to be back, right? So, and I remember the day we arrived, We were all standing outside the BBC studios in Glasgow and it was, it was a heart rendering moment. There was no doubt about it. And we, we we must have, we must have looked like a busload of, of tourists because we all had our video cameras and whatnot taken the sign here. Stand by the sign. Go on, stand by the sign. Right. So we're all standing by the signs and we're all all sauntering in. Not a clue. We haven't, we haven't got an iota of, of, What's about to happen? So we did the pilot and we went away out uh, with our little souvenirs, which were, by the way, like just, just, um, notice it. Mrs. Brown's boys rehearsal room on a, on a piece of paper. So we were t- <laughs> take that, take that, take that. Right. Um, and that was, I think round about the September time. And then and I could not have the dates wrong, but by the November, late November, not long before Christmas, I think we were playing maybe Liverpool or Manchester. And Brendan said, I've just had word and he actually rang me and he said, listen, um, just heard from the BBC and and we did see the pilot. They sent us a copy of the pilot so on and so forth. And, and he said, just heard from the BBC. And yeah, he said, Nah, they're not running with the pilot. So I said, oh, Brendan, I'm so sorry. But I said, you know, He said, sure, look, you know, things happen. And I said, yeah, I said, it's just, it was a great experience. And they don't know what they've missing, all the right things. And he said, no, they're definitely not doing the pilot. They want a complete series. And I said, you what? And he said, they want a whole series, six, six. So we went back the following February, I think, to record the series. And they never, the BBC never showed the pilot, Ireland did. RTE did, but BBC never showed the original pilot. Um, and so they re the pilot as the first episode, and then the rest. And at the rest of this say is history. And I remember when it went out on Irish television and the, the backlash, right? The the like it is the most disgusting thing we have ever seen on TV. The phone lines to all radio stations were this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I think it was in the RTE. Magazine. So the television critic themselves absolutely slated it, right? And six weeks later, well, uh, less than that, three weeks into it, we were had more viewers than the late, late show, right? So it was, it was, and the same in England, same thing happened. I'm not paying my, my, you know, the backlash. How dare they put something as atrocious as this on the telly. So in the end, you know, Brendan used to say, don't look at the newspapers, don't listen to the critics, right? Just enjoy doing what you're doing. And as I say, nobody expects it to go viral. I mean, I can't remember how many millions we had on Christmas Day for the very first Christmas special. So for me, I was still trying to get my head round the success of Mrs. Brown's boys. It was almost like I wasn't, I wasn't Winnie McGugan. That Winnie McGugan was a separate identity to me, um, so when I like initially I never got recognised, right? I never, because I I I hadn't done any television as myself in Ireland. Initially, I never got recognised, and be, but after about four or five years, it's that started to happen because I was on television programmes or chat shows and so on. And thanks to Kira Feeling, I was on, you know, the Today Show down and you know that kind of thing. So it just i couldn't and i still can't grasp it you know when people say oh god you're famous it's a word it doesn't make you feel any different inside i'm not famous i'm still eilish um i just i'm better known than i used to be right and and people are in love with the character rather than have you got me so the attachment is to the program and the different characters and I, I, I was old enough to separate, right? Don't get carried away with, uh, the fame of it all. And I also old enough to realize that nothing lasts forever. So enjoy every bit of it, right? Because tomorrow, and who knows, and it may not happen for a while yet, but tomorrow there's another show waiting around the corner there to push you off your, your, you know, but, but I have loved and still love every minute of it. It is it is great fun to do. Um, it brings a lot of uh, laughter to people's lives, and it doesn't matter whether you like it or you don't like. That doesn't bother me. If you watch it, great. If you don't watch it, hey, you know there's lots of things on TV I don't watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. as far as fame is concerned, and we're still going. In fact, we just. We just did four new episodes last May. We just uh, finished recording four new episodes last May. And we take off on the 24th of August to do a tour, a live UK tour in, in the UK. And we'll be back in the BBC in October to do Christmas specials.
0: Wow. In your early acting career, um, yeah. Eilish, and when you were doing gigs before Mrs. Brown's Boys, yeah. when you reflect now, was there any inappropriate behavior that you experienced that you know wouldn't be tolerated nowadays? Like, did you face sexism in oh, the industry?
1: yeah, there is. There, it's a hard one. Again, it's in their language. And language is very hard to change, you know, and they think they're being funny. Right. It's not meant to upset you. It's not meant to be insulting, but it is right. Um It's never been. Well, has it ever been aimed? Well, I've never heard it aimed at me personally, but at the same time, I go, no, that's that's wrong. That is wrong. And it's easier for me to challenge somebody when it's when they're aiming it at somebody else. And that's the that's the the righteous one in me that I. Hey, you know, leave her alone, right? Um, I think it's an industry that, um, yeah, I think it is exists and still exists in our industry. Uh, and I suppose hard for somebody really to, um, to make much of it because there's always a fear factor that you won't get the next gig. We've no security in this industry. As you well know, you create your own security, you create your own luck, you create your own opportunities to a very large extent. Um, so when you are lucky enough to be on a run um and perhaps somebody there is not a particularly nice person, can you do anything about it other than protect yourself, keep your mouth shut? Because if you don't, the chances are you won't get a recall when it tours again. So again, it's it's the fear factor. The insecurity of the industry. We have very little protection.
0: That's something that would be very difficult to change, I guess.
1: I think so. How do you change it?
0: Do you think the Me Too movement, I suppose, has had a significant impact? Do you think that it, do do you feel because of that, it may have help the situation obviously we always know that there there will be predators out there always but do you think that has had an impact at all
1: i i think it has had an impact in so much as it has given people the confidence or the courage uh to be verbal about the their experience but again it's like i mean me too is all about abusive situations okay um collectively we can do more about it one individual doing it. And we've read enough of stories about women who, you know, have been raped, taken to trial, and they walk free. Okay? <laughs> and you just go, There's something wrong with this system. Um, yeah, there's something wrong with the system. There's something wrong with the language that people use and and, and it's not just men. I mean, we can we can use a language that can be where we think we might be funny, but can't be taken as, you know, uh, racist or, you know, uh, and although you didn't intend it, you go, Oh, right. I mean, the, it's, it's a really hard one. And I would just say to any woman in that situation, she needs to get support. She needs to talk to somebody or people who will actually help her. Um, but it's, it's a courageous thing to do, really is a courageous thing to do.
0: I'm interested to hear how important faith is in your life or if you have any faith at all.
1: Wow. Um I have do I have faith? I I don't believe I I'm very anti-religion, right? Um cuz it certainly did me no favors. I I I grew up literally always feeling guilty. And because of guilt, um it did have an impact on a huge impact on my life and the decisions that I made in my life. So, but I do believe in, I am a probably more spiritual person. I do believe in universal energy. I do believe that we are connected, all of us. We are all part of the one source. People refer that to as God. I refer, refer that to as one source of energy. That's what we come from. Um, the Bible, I think is a f- terrific handbook for life. Some of it. Um, Love thy neighbour as thyself. Do unto others as you'd have done to yourself. If we just followed those two examples, or those two kind of instructions, right? We would have harmony in the world. Total harmony. Because you would never be cruel to me and I would never be cruel to you. And I would see you, whether you were black, white, Jewish, whatever, right? I would see you as my sister. I would see you as my neighbor. And I really believe that. So, yeah, I'm idealistic, I suppose, yeah. But that's, that's, and that's what what keeps me going. Now, I'll be very honest, when I'm lying awake at nighttime and I can't sleep, what comes to haunt me are the demons from my past who go, you shouldn't, you know, you should, you're gonna, you're gonna be punished for turning your back on your religion. Now, I know that's not me. I know that's not me. I know there are, there are other voices. There are voices that I was reared on. Right. But they're still there. When, you know, when, when, when you condition a child so young and repeated often enough, and no matter how many books I have read and how many um, spiritual weekends I go away on, and and they're all wonderful, and yeah, and I feel fantastic. But in the darkest hours of night, yeah, when all the questions come up, you know what you know uh, when you when you know everything you've done during the day comes flying past you, and so on and so forth. But you actually, the biggest one is for me is you know, the mistakes you've made in your life and perhaps one of them was turning your back on the religion. I know that's not my voice, but it's still there. Now, I'll probably spend the rest of my life, right, <laughs> battling with that demon um, because it has no grounds, because it's not true. So on an intellectual level, I know all of that. If you had said the same to me, i oh, for fuck's sake, Kira, get, real, will you? And do yourself a favour. Stop tormenting yourself. But I think when you have that little voice in your head that will not be silenced uh, until I close my eyes for the last time, maybe it will be silenced.
0: That's very honest of you to Relay that, I'm sure many people feel that way as well, Um, especially a certain generation that would have grown up. Yeah. Through yeah. a very different period to my generation.
1: Absolutely.
0: Can I ask you yeah, briefly, yeah. Uh, what is mm. the one thing that you would change about Ireland and why? Ah, what would
1: I change about Ireland? The weather. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so um, apart from the weather.
1: Again, I would change about Ireland. I still don't think Ireland has the equality Women do not have equality in Ireland. Not true equality, not open, honest, transparency equality. We do not have it. What I would love to see is that, and I think the only way women will actually get equality is when women work collectively, and I mean all women from all walks of life, from all religions, that we band together, yeah, um that is the only way we're actually going to bring. It. We band together. We support each other. We educate each other. That um, we band together and do it because otherwise we're never going to get it. We're not going to get it from men. And men aren't our enemy. Right. Women have to equate women. Right. We have to stop. We've been brought up to compete. Women have been brought up to compete with each other. Very unhealthy. Right. Women should have their all, their all all boys clubs. Right. We should have things like the Mason. And I hate things like that. I hate institutions like that, but they thrive. (laughs) And I go, no, we need to be, we need to band together. We need to be opening doors for each other. We need to, when we do get in position of power, we, you know, a lot of women are pulling up the ladder and saying no more and no, no, no. You actually extend your hand of friendship and you help each other. Anyway, that's my idea. And I think and I'd love to see that globally. Right.
0: And lastly, I show a piece of advice you would give to my next guest.
1: Oh, my God. The piece of advice I'd give to your next guest is probably the advice I'd give to myself. Right. And that is to live in the moment. Guilt only interferes with relationships. Be kind to yourself. Be still and love yourself, because no one else is going to do any of those things for you.
0: Eilish, thank you so much for speaking to the podcast.
1: It's a pleasure, Kira. Absolute pleasure.
0: Join me back here next week for another episode of the Kira Feeling Podcast.